top of the evening, everyone. I am Joseph Cotto, and joining me tonight is Patrick Basham. Patrick, how's it going? It's going very well, Joseph. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be back with you and your fine audience. Looking forward to uh, a great conversation. Absolutely. Always great to have you on the program. And uh, I was going to say that Patrick, for those who don't know, is the head of the Democracy Institute, which is a nonprofit organization. It's a think tank. Uh, but perhaps it's most well known for its polling. Uh, it does polling uh, with regard to a great deal of current events on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, although it is perhaps at this point most famous for its election season polling. Uh, Donald Trump certainly uh, gave the organization some publicity in 2020, and despite what some said, it wasn't any kind of quid pro quo arrangement. Uh, it's just that he appreciated uh, how Patrick's firm did its polling, uh, unlike a lot of other organizations, which to say the least, have their issues. Uh, as folks know, I'm not a big fan of public polling, generally speaking, but I always find the Democracy Institute's numbers to be of interest. Uh, Patrick, did I get that all correct in a nutshell? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we've done uh, quite a lot in various parts of the world, um, most uh, famously or infamously in the UK over Brexit and in the, in the US ever since Trump came on the scene. Uh, and we are commencing uh, Labor Day weekend in the U.S. We're commencing uh, the publication of our monthly poll, election, U.S. election poll with the Daily Express, Sunday Express newspapers, uh, which has, uh, the Express has recently launched uh, Express U.S., which uh, some of your viewers may be familiar with the Mail Online, very successful U.S., uh, US U.K.-based um, publication with a, a U.S. Uh, website. Uh, the Express is doing very well with its own uh, public, uh, own website, albeit in, in its inf infancy. And uh, for 15 months from September this year, right through uh, just up to Election Day in November 2024, uh, we'll be producing these monthly U.S. election polls, national polls for the Express, which they will be publishing. And I encourage all of your viewers who are interested in polling, interested in the election, interested in a a somewhat British slant on things to uh, check out the express.co.uk, um, check out uh, various um, social media platforms, and they should be able to get all of that information. Interestingly, Patrick is, uh, despite what you might hear from his voice, you're not from Britain, you're from the Channel Islands, which uh, technically is a different thing. I'm sure that the Channel Islanders are very glad that they're not under the jurisdiction of uh, Westminster. Sorry, I'm sorry, the, 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 the last bit of what you said, Joseph, about the Channel oh, Islanders. Oh, yeah, I, I said, I'm sure they're very, oh, no problem. I'm sure they're very glad that they're not under the jurisdiction of Westminster. They're glad to have <laughs> autonomy. Yeah, it's. I think with every passing, I would have said in the past, maybe passing year, but I think now with every passing month or week, sometimes every passing day, uh, most Channel Islanders are glad of their uh, sort of semi-autonomous status. They are, for those who don't know, they are um, technically politically dependent upon uh, the UK, on the government in, in London, uh, but in financial terms, they are almost entirely autonomous, which is why they fall um, in the category of tax havens uh, for the last generation um, and are sort of fiercely, proudly independent. Um, and I think the Channel Islands and some other um, comparable analogous jurisdictions around the world um, are sort of so maybe arguably oases 
um, in, in an increasingly large desert of, uh, of uh, poor public policy making and um, encroachment on you know, financial and personal liberties. No question about that. Ever going to get into uh, those unfortunate issues uh, which you raised, and these issues certainly proliferate here in the United States. But uh, yeah, the Channel Islands, I imagine a lot of folks there might find it to be boring, although they probably get used to it. Uh, but it's a nice kind of boring, because if you have the kind of excitement that you get in the United Kingdom or, you know, to a greater extent in the United States, uh, it might it, it can certainly lead one to wish for the kind of boredom that the Channel mm. Islanders have day in, day out. Oh, absolutely. And it's a situation which, I mean, I, I live with, which is that the things that you grow up with, and this applies to many people in you know, across the across the globe. The, many of the things you that, that don't appeal to you, you find boring, maybe even dislike uh, when you're growing up. Uh, as you get older, you appreciate them more and more, and even might develop a yearning for some of them. Um, I mean, located as I am most of the time um, in glorious Washington D.C., uh, one can't help but hark back not just to the days of one's youth, but just. Um, real-time contemporaneous situation. Channel Islands is a good example uh, where there is so little crime, right? I mean, London is a very, London is the, the British Washington DC these days, uh, particularly on the knife crime side of it. Uh, but when you, you know, you, you are personally safe in the Channel Islands. Um, and that um, sadly, but importantly, you know, really starts to stand out um, these days. Uh, you know, your, your money is largely your own, you are, you're, you're safe. It is um, culturally um, homogeneous, uh, homogeneous, and so uh, there isn't the there isn't the civil strife uh, and all of that. You know, uh, it always seems that pretty much everyone is rowing in the same direction. Although the population has dramatically increased over the last uh, two or three decades, you know, there's the, the the success of the financial sector has brought in just enormous numbers of people. Um, from the from the United Kingdom, but also from elsewhere, and of course you have financial uh, institutions and banks from literally all over the world who all who all have offices there. Um, some of which, some of the staff which fill those offices are, are from um, those sort of more far flung spots. So yeah, it's um, Channel Islands are a great place to invest, but also a great place to visit uh, because they continue to you know uh, remain largely unspoiled. And so whether it's, whether it's from a, um, an aesthetic point of view in terms of the coastal beauty and the, and the views and the beaches and all of that, um, but also from a historical point of view, because you know, not all of your audience uh, may appreciate that the Channel Islands were uh, tragically the only part of the United Kingdom or Great Britain, broadly defined, um, that were occupied by um, the Nazis during the Second World War, in fact, for most of the Second World War. And the while there are still um, emotional scars, I would say, among Channel Islanders, uh, uh, although you know most of those who who lived through it are no longer with us, um, there are still uh, there's still a physical architecture um, of uh, what the Germans uh, built to reinforce the islands and prevent any kind of British rescue operation, etc. Uh, the slave labour uh, operation that the Germans ran in terms of importing. Um, Slavs and others um, from continental Europe and, ha and having them uh, work, toil away um, 
on literally on the Channel Islands. So it's a fascinating place, whatever one's, uh, whether one has a financial focus, a tourism focus, or historical focus. Uh, and so I should probably end my advertorial. Oh, no, it's fine. There. But um, yeah, it is It is a remarkable place. Not the only one in the world, but there seem to be fewer and fewer that uh, that tick so many boxes um, in, in an attractive sense, which is uh, you know a testament to the direction that much of the globe has gone in recent years and decades. To say the least, I don't think there was ever an appetite for neo-Nazism on any of the Channel Islands. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but, I mean, this is one of the ironies, of course, if you're on the political right uh, growing up, whether in the UK or Canada, where I've lived a great deal, Australia, here in the United States, um, you know, the, 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 what, what, what was the left, um, you know, would all, well, they would then did what now just anybody who's a liberal or further to the left does, which is call everyone who disagrees with them a Nazi or a fascist. And of course, the irony was that when someone like myself had those um, barbs directed at them, at them um, the people who were, who were shouting the loudest at you, screaming the loudest at you, um, had no idea, of course, and it tended to mute them quite quickly when they found that um, I was from a place and my my family members had directly experienced the very thing that they were accusing me of. Uh, so, again, you know, uh, today, widespread lack of um, widespread historical ignorance, particularly amongst uh, younger folk, uh, because it's nothing I'd say it's probably worse than it was, despite greater access to um educational resources and technology and, and travel personal experience but this is a problem that's been going on for a very long time is that uh, we forget our history and increasingly we don't even bother to learn our history so we can embarrass ourselves quite easily when we bump into people who've uh, whose personal histories uh, conflict with our prejudices and our preconceived notions about them wasn't it Winston Churchill who said that the fascists of tomorrow will call themselves anti-fascists? Something like that. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there's so much uh, confession uh, through projection these days. Big picture, small picture, not just in the United States, but, but around the world, especially through Western countries. I mean, basically, whatever it is you are that isn't good, uh, you just automatically accuse your opponents or your perceived opponents uh, to, to hold those views or be that type of person or to have that kind of history. Uh, you know, they're racist, they're criminals, they're authoritarians, they're fascists, whatever it is. Um, the only good thing about this is it's been going on so long now, so widespread, um, so over the top, so not supported by the evidence that I think two things are happening, um, not perhaps to a sufficient degree, but they are happening. And, and one is that it is weakening the attacks on the, on the, the, the perceived and actual opponents um, because it's simply, um, it's too much. You know, again, it, it's, it's just not, um, it doesn't resonate because there just isn't enough there. Maybe often there isn't anything there to support it. The other thing that's happening is they're just getting tuned out because it's just boring, you know, it's just boring this. And it, it's so, the volume is at 10 all the time in terms of the rhetoric, right? Uh, and it's just this default position, this automatic reflexive um, litany of insults, but there's such predictable insults, right? You know, if you, you, you know, if you, if, if you question any of the alleged science or any of the policy prescriptions 
regarding um, what we're supposed to do about climate change, you're not simply a climate change denier, but you're also nowadays, you're also a racist, right? So, um, and if, you know, and this just, you know, most people don't think of themselves in those bad terms, those, um, you know, um, to, for lack of a better phrase, black and white terms. Um, and so they, they just don't understand why they and others who they may support on some issues are tarred with that kind of a brush. And they realize how not just initially you might think it's silly, but these days it's actually it literally has legal consequences, criminal consequences often. Uh, and, and so folks are, you know, the average person isn't incredibly well informed in terms of policy detail, etc. But there still remains an innate common sense and also a sense of decency and a sense of fair play. I mean, this is something that's still very prevalent in British culture. And I think in American culture, there's still a, there's still a preference for the underdog. Uh, and so one of the great ironies is that the most polarizing and quote unquote hated and certainly the most attacked figure in modern American history, perhaps in American history period, um, mm -hmm. is actually being turned in inc increasingly large numbers into something or among increasingly large numbers of, uh, of voters and part, portions of the electorate into something of a sympathetic figure, mm -hmm. which is quite remarkable. And obviously the complete opposite of which uh, uh, opposite um, outcome from which the the purveyors of all of these insults had intended. Um, but of course, you know, you um, you play with fire and uh, you sometimes you get burned. Uh, to say the least. And uh, for those who don't know, the Democracy Institute, I did mention it is a think tank. I did mention it's a nonprofit. But they do focus principally on economic issues and how these issues relate to a host of things going on in society, politics being only one of those things. And uh, on that note, uh, Patrick's uh, unique expertise when it comes to uh, economics and their ramifications, uh, also is understanding the business world, these things will be of keen uh, importance, uh, considering what we're about to address. There was an article published in the Washington Examiner uh, four days ago titled, Why Voters Aren't Buying Bidenomics. And the article begins, President Joe Biden is frustrated. Unemployment has fallen to a healthy 3.6%. The economy is growing at a decent 2.4% rate, and inflation has fallen to 3%. And yet, despite all this good economic news, the vast majority of voters rate the economy as poor and blame Biden for its sorry state. What gives? One hint can be found in the most recent CBS News poll, which found that 65% of adults would rate the economy as bad, and just 13% said they were getting better financially. Most adults, 52%, said they were just staying in place while 35% said they were falling behind. Among those that rated the economy as bad, 88% blamed, quote, inflation and the rising costs of goods and services, end quote. Indeed, among all respondents, even those who rated the economy as good, 70% of adults said that their personal income was not keeping up with inflation. And this perception is re reflected in economic numbers. Despite falling inflation, prices are still rising. Over and overall, real wages are still down 5% since Biden took office. In other words, most voters are functionally making less money today than when Biden took office. 
No wonder most people think the economy is still bad. Very interesting. I think uh, most people probably feel the heat at a rate of more than 5%, uh, whether that's their subjective you know, opinion, their feelings, or uh, an actual reflection of how the economy is impacting them. That's up for debate. This is a case-by-case thing. But uh, I, I find this uh, article from the Washington Examiner to be quite fascinating. Anything to say about it, Patrick? Well, I mean, the, answer, the, the article, I think, does answer its own question um, correctly in that the average person feels worse off than they were um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, um, because they are, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality. But it's, it's a lot worse than those numbers suggest. Um, I say that for, for a bunch of reasons. I and mean, a couple of the more obvious or apparent ones are that, if, I mean, there's this notion that the media has been pushing for a while now is that inflation is, is falling, inflation is sort of almost gone. And, of course, it hasn't. It hasn't for a couple of reasons. The first of which, the first of which is that what is the rate of inflation has fallen, right? Mm-hmm. Official rate of inflation, which means there's still inflation. Prices are still going up each month, uh, but they're not going up as quickly as they were. So if you take where we are today with where we were um, six months a year from now, the prices are higher mm-hmm. than they were a month ago, vis-a-vis six months or a year earlier. It's uh-huh. simply that the the, the increase, the, the trend line is still upward. It's just not as, not as dramatic as it was. Um, and the second part, so, so people are you know, spending more and getting less as a consequence. Um, the second part of the inflation number, of course, is that the numbers aren't really the numbers. Uh, early on in uh, the Biden administration, uh, they started messing around with the methodology. Not the first presidency, not the first administration to do this. They started messing around with the methodology to make sure the numbers were as small as they could get away, plausibly get away with. And of course, the media goes along with this because that's what the media does. And so yeah. we have numbers that if you ask, if you ask in a focus group, you say, look, you know, inflation was only 4% this month. And, you know, did you notice the difference? Of course, people don't notice the difference because in the average person's life, in their groceries and their, uh, their rents and, their, and everything else, um, the increases are double digits. Uh, in some cases, you know, sort of dramatically double digits. Uh, and so these, these quote-unquote de- declining numbers uh, don't reflect reality. And we have to remember that if you look across not just inflation, but so many of the major economic uh, numbers that the government produces, governments always revise them the next month, the next quarter, revise them. They can go up, they can go down. Um, and under a transparent sort of an honest administration, you'll see both. Sometimes it's quite minor tweaks. Other times the, the, the actual numbers are quite dramatic. Again, it could be in one direction or the other uh, because the government doesn't control that. But what happens with the Biden administration is every month, every quarter, all the numbers just about are always revised downwards. Okay, By down, I mean bad, in, in the wrong direction. And it's most noticeable if you go back to October, November, right up before the midterm elections. A lot of quote-unquote positive or more positive, less negative numbers came out in various areas of the economy. And then December, January, February saw them all revised dramatically downwards. Okay, um, So we're getting this all the time. And of course, we're only at this lower, slower rate of inflation um, uh, f- for reasons that aren't really good reasons. I mean, we're, you know, the, the, there's really truly, I think, a de- def- big picture macro. There's a deflationary environment 
out there now applying pressure. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Fed, which doesn't have anything like the power it thinks it does or the power it did have, it's, you know, it's, it's solving this problem, um, but not with you know, jacking up interest rates to record levels, and certainly in, in, you know, in, the, in the modern era, um, and we're, we're still where we are, right? So you've got, you've got people paying twice as much for, for a mortgage, twice as much for rent. And if you just look across the board, everything is at record levels in a bad way. Credit card debt, bankruptcies. Um, you look at what's happening in the um, in the commercial real estate market, the residential real estate market, and of course, some of this isn't reflected in prices. Another way in which the inflation numbers sort of um, organically fudged. I'm saying this isn't the government. This is this is business. You know, you have shrinkflation where products contain less volume or or, or number uh, than they did for the same price. You have it now in housing, right? Where houses are being built slightly smaller, so that the price it doesn't it remains the same, or the price goes down a little bit. Um, you know, we're seeing this all over. And these are the tangible ways in which individuals and households' financial, economic quality of life is is being affected. Being you know, there's nothing. Well, outside of losing you know a family member. Um, in a time at a time of war or to crime, there's nothing affects an individual or a family or a household more tangibly, more dramatically, more definitively than when they're impacted mm -hmm. economically in a good or a bad way. You see, you know, folks are, you know, are draining their 401ks uh, to pay mm -hmm. for things because, you know, for, for for 20 years, the housing market, the stock market, was was keeping keeping wealth at least on paper up enough that folks could borrow mm -hmm. against their houses um, to afford their lifestyles because their wages uh, weren't going up in real terms. But you know now with interest rates, you can't get a loan. You can't get another credit card. All of this, you can't, you can't get a car loan. You know, I mean, the, 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 the new car market, the used car market, everything is looking, looking bad and looking like it's going to get mm -hmm. worse. So understandably, the Biden Biden and his surrogates are out there telling everybody that Bidenomics is working um, because they point to again they point to this quote unquote low inflation, um, which is interesting here because politically because as you we discussed this at length and I'm sure you discussed at length with other guests uh, Joseph in 2021 and 2022 because once they the Biden administration finally acknowledged that there was inflation that it was high and that it wasn't to use their word transitory that it was you know, here for a while at least. Um, you remember who was to blame? It was, depending on the day of the week, it was either Trump or it was Putin, right? Um, uh -huh. And they were quite, well, they were serious about it, but this is certainly what they said with straight faces. What I find curious is that now that the problem is solved, this um, victory tour that Biden has been doing on Bidenomics I assume it's going to include Mar-a-Lago in Florida and Moscow in Russia because he needs to thank if, if Putin and Trump were to blame. Surely they're also the re, you know, they get the credit for this because uh, he claims to have always been a passenger, a bystander during this whole thing. But, in, you know, but, but there you are. And the other thing they point to, of course, they point to unemployment, which is very interesting because the labor participation rate, which is a really, you know, really telltale sign of what's going on in the labor market um, remains down, you know, it's lower than it was um, pre-COVID. And what that means is that continuing a long-term trend, except under Trump, 
what it means is that increasingly people are retiring early. They're dropping out of the labor market. Um, they're not seeing the jobs and the wages that are going to make them make it worth their while to keep working or to go back to work. Right. So we have a low unemployment rate, quote unquote, for two reasons. And they're both bad reasons. One reason is that where, you know, where are these jobs that have brought the rate down? The jobs are part time, low paid jobs. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're government jobs, be, uh, neither of which are good news for the economy, particularly the government jobs. Because government jobs don't produce, they're not value added. They cost money and they, on paper, perform a service, a service, a useful service, arguably. Of course, much of that isn't true. And so they're a drain on the economy. And they exist because the government prints and borrows, like uh, spends like drunken sailors, um, making sure that it's harder to deal with inflation and making sure there's a $1.7 trillion deficit this year going over 30 trillion in terms of the national debt. Um, and so what's happening in the real world is that people, those who are working are doing two jobs or three jobs, right? And there was a fabulous, I think it was Babylon B. There was a fabulous satirical headline the other day, the other week, which they said, um, uh, basically the, the uh, Biden administration is claiming credit because now every working American has two jobs. Right. Um, and of course, well, like most good satire, there's a lot of truth to it because people are needing to, to do two jobs because the money just isn't going as far. And again, these are, you know, these these tend to be lower paid. Um, they tend to be retail. They tend to be restaurant. They tend to be service industry jobs. Uh, so it's pretty it's, it's pretty bleak. The stock market took a big hit when he first Biden first came in. It sort of stabilized um, that. You know, we have to remember it's a couple of things here. You know, the stock market, like unemployment, these aren't leading indicators. So let's say what I'm saying about why the unemployment rate is low is wrong, and unemployment is down for good reasons. Um, you can't then take that. You couldn't then even take that and say, well, that means things are going to get better. Because what happens with unemployment, the unemployment rate, no matter who's president, is it tends to be a lag, what they call a lagging indicator. So it's one of the last things to tell you that there's trouble, not just ahead, but troubles here. So when you see the unemployment rate start to tick up, that means that we're already in a serious economic situation, right? It's not, it, it's, it's not, oh, oh dear, we may, oh, this is, this is looking like difficulty. No, we're already in difficulty when that happens. Similar with the stock market. Things can be really quite bumpy, in fact, quite bad before the stock market necessarily takes a dive. And I think that's where we are now. So you know, over the coming months, we're going to see, uh, we will see both of those quote unquote, comparatively positive indicators start to head down. Everything else is already headed down. Um, you know, the, we're just, we're just surviving on literally on borrowed and printed money, increasingly uh, worthless money. And so I understand that the Biden administration has just about nothing to rave about, to pat itself on the back about. Um, especially anything beyond its base vote, where it's it's done, attempted or done a number of the things that the, the, the left-wing base has wanted it to do. So we can claim, even though those things haven't been successful, surprise, surprise, they can claim to, well, we've done what you wanted. In terms of, of more moderate Democrats um, and independent voters and sort of never and non-Trump Republicans who might, who, who either voted for Biden or might think of voting for Biden this time, there's, 
there's there's just so little to give them. But as we know, these days, if you go out and you trumpet your your alleged accomplishments, and of course the media doesn't critique it, and you've got tons and tons of money to campaign through through paid advertising and communications on social media um, about your alleged accomplishments, then um, it's you know it, it may be enough. It's certainly the only thing you can do, and it may be enough to you know maintain some kind of competitive status. Um, but it is we are living in an economic house of cards, and it is going to come down. The question I think is, does it come down? Later this year, does it come down the first half of next year or the second half of next year? And if you're on the other side of the political divide, um, there's no bad. If you're in opposition, there's no bad time for bad economic news. It's always going to be helpful on at some level and to some degree. I think the calculus, which they don't have any control over on the Republican side, is what would be better that people really, really start to feel even worse about the economy sooner. And does that mean that they just then tune out Biden for 2024 because they they have this you know this this they're living this bad situation or they're going to have this very very recent memory or is it better that things gradually get worse and by let's say this by this time next year the, the you know the, the legs have come out from under the stool and the thing is just collapsing um, and it's a very it's, it's the strongest possible indicator that the country needs a course correction. Um, like I say, the Republicans don't control that. And I presume that they are uh, planning uh, for each one of those economic scenarios. One has to hope from their point of view uh, that they are. But, you know, these are Republicans. So their ability, propensity to fumble what will be a God-given opportunity um, to campaign on and succeed electorally based largely on the economy Um you know, who knows what they will they will do with that. Well, they certainly never fail to let the abortion issue snatch a victory from, excuse me, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So uh, who knows how that will factor going forward. But it doesn't look promising. Yeah, I mean, there's there's other issues that they need to um, they need to focus on the economy being the principal one and everything that comes under that umbrella. Um, but there are a couple of others that are um well, they're not necessarily a close second in a national sense. I mean, our new, we poll again in the, in the Express in a week or two, we'll have a better idea. But based on polling over the last couple of years, the economy has been out front easily. Uh, all facets of economic um, news, those economic financial quality of life issues. But there are two or three other issues which have, um, have always been important um, and increasingly important. And uh, they are crime and they are immigration, right? So... A Republican campaign at the presidential level, at the congressional level, that focuses upon those issues is the one is a campaign that's going to have the most probability and likelihood of success. There are lots of other issues that are important to voters, but they're nothing like as important. And there are other issues that are important to voters, whether it's a, uh, on, on the especially on the conservative or independent side, um, like abortion, uh, like education, like uh, the whole woke issue. Um, you know, you can go, you can go through the whole litany, the whole list, um, foreign policy, even etc. Um, they are, they are, um, they skew certain parts of the base, uh, certain independents. They skew regionally in various ways. They, they 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 skew economically. But if you're looking at 
particularly at the presidential level, or if there's a national congressional campaign on the part of the Republicans, then you you the three the three issues that are going to, that have dominated and will dominate the public mind, whether they dominate the campaign or not, the economy, crime, and immigration. Um, doesn't if the Republicans and their presidential candidate hammer on those issues, um, just you know, unyieldingly between now and the election, if they do it effectively, it doesn't guarantee victory, but it gives them the best chance of victory. And if they don't hammer those issues and don't hammer them effectively, then they're creating an opportunity for the for the Democrats um, to jump in, particularly congressionally. You know, some of the savvier Democratic uh, consultants, strategists, and candidates who in swing districts um, are going to, as they already are doing, um, you know, being remaining at arm's length from the glories of Bidenomics um, and are going mm. to talk more and more about the border. They're going to talk more and more about crime. You know, you see it happening. Um, so many dem Democratic mayors in blue cities and governors in blue states um, have been twisting themselves in knots, uh, trying to forget their campaigns to defund the police and cheer on the riots yeah. of 2020 and support Antifa and BLM and all the rest of it, uh, because they are... They are the canaries in the coal mine in the, in the next 6, 12, 18 months about how the public really feels, or the voting public feels about these issues. So it's, 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 not, um, it's not, you know, rocket science at this point for the Republicans uh, and, and conservative groups supporting Republican candidates. But, you know, you can, you can lead a horse to water, as they say, right? Absolutely. Uh, no guarantee it's going to drink. Uh, it's uh, a sad situation, put mildly, among many other sad situations these days. Uh, there is another article here about Bidenomics, which I find uh, worth bringing up. Uh, it's from USA Today. Bidenomics in action. Democrats' excessive spending, mounting debt, earn U.S. credit downgrade. And this was yeah. published four days ago. This is something, I mean, the other article is especially important. Uh, anything that gets raised here is, but this article uh, has special what it, it's talking about, what it refers to as special resonance with me. Uh, it begins, this must be awkward for President Joe Biden. Shortly after he started taking credit for Bidenomics and how it's benefiting the country, the United States got a credit downgrade. It's only the second time that confidence in the federal government's ability to manage its debt has officially been reduced. So it's a big deal. Has been officially reduced, excuse me. It turns out Democrats' unlimited appetite for spending and their refusal to address growing deficits isn't sitting well with close watchers of our economy, and this should serve as a warning that inaction is no longer acceptable. Despite the left's attempt to dump all of the credit downgrade blame on Republicans to work to trim spending for the debt ceiling showdown earlier this year, the report from Fitch Ratings spells out much bigger concerns about the U.S. fiscal outlook and the need for a spending overhaul. If anything, the downgrade indicates that lawmakers didn't do nearly enough in their negotiations over raising the debt ceiling, the agency downgraded the nation's credit rating from AAA to AA+, although still a good rating, the lost confidence is noteworthy. Uh, now, getting away from the article and reading uh, Fitch's own statement about why it did what it did, the rating downgrade of the United States reflects the expected fiscal deterioration over the next three years, 
a high and growing general government debt burden and the erosion of governance relative to AA and AAA rated peers over the last two decades that has manifested in repeated debt limit standoffs and last minute resolutions. Obviously, this is very serious uh, stuff, Patrick, for reasons that do not need any. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, they, they very well explain themselves. I'll put it that way. Uh, what's your take on this uh, really uh, un unfortunate occurrence? Yeah, I mean, it's true, the truth is sort of long overdue, isn't it? Um, I mean, this, that's the reality of it. And I mean, the emphasis that's been put on it, uh, both, I think, by those making the decisions themselves, and certainly the media um, spin on it or emphasis has been on the, the process, right? Um, there's this gummed up system, it's a lack of transparency. Um, we have this ridiculous situation where we get into this we sort of corner ourselves, we get up against the debt ceiling limit and they're, you know, they get these sort of terrible decisions um, and these omnibus bills and everybody seems to just sort of vote in the dark on something they haven't read. And sort of all of that's true, um, but it's, it's more sort of symptomatic than it is, I think, sort of causal in terms of where we are. We are. I mean, the bottom line is the federal government spends way too much money, <laughs> right? Um, and gets far too little for what it spends in return. You know, American taxpayers would be much more enthusiastic about a good-sized federal government if they felt it was value for money. Mm -hmm. But when you have a really an increasingly expensive, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, the dramatic increases under co temporary under COVID, but now made permanent under Biden. Um, you know, the American government, federal government, is expanding at such a rate. I mean, it's just mind-boggling, right? Such uh -huh. an expensive rate, and. Uh, so you, you have, as I say, over 30 trillion in debt, a deficit this year of at least 1.7 trillion. You have a situation where spending is out of control. I mean, it's controlled out of control spending, as in it's the plan to spend in an out of control fashion. It's not an accident, right? And you have what 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 have liberals now progressives, whatever you want to call them? I mean, they're all left wing status is the bottom line. Um, what have they always said? We need to spend more, or sorry, we need to invest more. Uh, and but it's okay because unlike the Republicans who talk talk a big talk about cutting spending, when all they want to do is cut taxes, we're actually brave enough and and, and frugal enough and and courageous enough to tell you that we're going to raise taxes and that's going to pay for everything, right? And everyone will be happy. And of course, what we're seeing under Biden is not, is that spending has gone up just as much, if not more, than they promised, threatened. But tax tax revenues are down, right? So they're, even their they're, they're, um, naive, idealistic, some would say dishonest, dishonest projections about deficits and debt are, are just being blown out of the water because the money just isn't coming in. Because guess what? You know, you, when, you, when you ramp up taxes, uh, no matter who it's on, um, they'd spend less. They spend it elsewhere. They spend. They, they take their money outside the country. They invest it elsewhere, and all of that, which of course is one of the things that Donald Trump demonstrated. Um, you could turn around if you, you know, if you reduced income taxes on uh, middle class and lower income people, and if you reduce corporation tax. Uh, Democrats, of course, like to do the opposite, uh, and we, you know, we see the consequences of that. Uh, so, you know, we are, we're in a situation now. See these these. I mean, the, the rate the. The credit rating obviously affects the, 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 the interest rate that American taxpayers are paying for this glorious debt. 
And we're in a situation now, we're approaching the, the, the day when half of the revenue the federal government brings in, the one in every two tax dollars, is going to be spent exclusively and entirely on servicing the debt, right? I mean, that is staggering, but it's terrifying. I mean, imagine if your income, you know, think of it, your own income, your sort of net income goes half of the money you bring, you earn just goes on paying your credit card, right? I mean, nothing else. I mean, that you think of where you are overnight and what your prospects are going forward and how difficult, arguably impossible it is to get out of that situation. And this is where the federal government, I mean, it's always been a bad situation with 25%, 30 35% uh, of revenue going to service the national debt. When, you, when you're looking at half the money coming in, and of, you know, and of course, that money, that, that, that's declining what's coming in. Uh, it, the whole situation gets worse and worse. Uh, so something has to give here, right? Something has to give. Obviously, the economy needs to needs to be on a faster growth track. People need to keep more of their own money. Uh, business needs to be freed of unnecessary regulation, et cetera, et cetera. We need to have a you know a sane energy policy. Uh, we need to stop wasting money on uh, getting ourselves into you know quagmires overseas and all of that. We need to take a really good look at the defense industry or the, the, the government, the, the, the explicitly government side of that, but also the government funded side of that, um, external part of that, you know, it's just across the board, uh, across the board. And in fact, the, uh, the, the, the dog, the, the, the small dogs, the Shih Tzu population is, um, they're so moved by what I'm saying they're, that they're finding it impossible to keep, uh, keep their enthusiasm in check. Uh, but you know, can, you, can any of your dogs make an appearance on the show or are they too uh, distracted? I, I, they, they might be able to, but they're first of all going to have to stop beating each other up. Um, it's, uh, their, their, their bark is worth their, worse than their bite because we're talking about two quite small little dogs. And uh, yeah, well, yeah, this is great, isn't it? So I'm sorry, it wouldn't be more interesting than most, all of your other um, all of your other uh, Twitter programs, uh, Joseph. But in terms of when I'm on, this might be the most interesting. If I just do play by play on the Shih Tzu, um, <laughs> the Shih Tzu fight, what what I increasingly refer to as the shit storm. Um, so we're witnessing the shit storm right now, and we um, well a sudden break in the action. So I think we've gone to our corners. Uh, whether that lasts or not, we'll have to see. But there you go, right? So uh, who do who do live television? Oh, it's great. I was going to say that. Uh, why are your Shih Tzus aggravated with each other? Is it a long-term thing, or is it just something that popped up? Oh, it, it just pops up. It's actually what it is. Is that one? There's a there's there's a there's a puppy who is um, endless and endless energy. Um, and uh, when others don't wish to play with him, um, oh. he doesn't get he doesn't get uh, sort of violent in a dangerous way. But he gets very physical. He thinks that. Uh, forcing himself upon others is the solution, right? Um, uh, and it's very much the the liberal left wing thing of you know if your policy doesn't work, you just double down, triple down on it, do more of the same, hoping uh, bizarrely for a very different response, which never comes. So that's sort of the um, the, the life he's living right now, uh, until he's old enough to learn better and perhaps have a little less energy to expend. But yeah, so. Um, 
it's all very exciting. I'm not, I wonder whether, whether the, you know, of course, there's no visuals, so I suppose um, eventually when this program is archived, sort of audio only, um, <laughs> whether it will matter that there weren't visuals to accompany this, uh, the performance. But we'll be talking for a little while yet longer, Joseph, I guess, today. So we may get a, uh, we may get a round two. We can only hope, right? <laughs> I, I can imagine. But I always find animals to be interesting. I have no pets. The closest thing I have to any pets are the fellows you see behind me on the, yes. on the couch. Uh, but uh, there, there's a story behind them. Uh, it's sort of like a joke that became, I, I think, uh, a running gag. So, uh, but but anyway, I know, but I, I always take my hat off to people who can deal with real animals and who give them a good home, even when these animals act up in a way that uh, you would expect sort of like a toddler to. It's a, they're, um, animals are very, um, well, they're very, you wouldn't think so the last few minutes, but they are generally speaking a very calming um, uh, gift, um, good for one's sort of physical and, and mental health. Um, and uh, they're also, a, they're, they're, they're a humbling experience because they're a constant daily, daily reminder of one's limitations, particularly the limit, you know, one's limitations in terms of ability to persuade um, <laughs> and educate um, there's only so much one can do in terms of training. There's only so far you can go, particularly with cats. Right? Dogs are, is generally speaking, in a crude way, uh, simpler to deal with. Uh, but uh, they, they sort of there's an innate desire amongst many to actually please you or at least um, go along with you. Where cats, it's more of a lottery, uh, even if it's in their own self-interest. Just on principle, they tend to take a more anarcho-libertarian view where... Uh, <laughs> They uh, just like to do things their way, whether it's in their self-interest or not. Um, so that's that, that. You know that that that's always fascinating. I mean, it was said to me a long time ago that you know cats really are um, conservatives. They don't really care what you think, whereas whereas dogs, you know, they just really want to be liked. So they actually are inherently quite good lefties. Um, so we'll. But I think that's I think that's unfair to the canine population. There are many sane canines out there. Uh, no doubt. No, I never had a cat, even though I like the Siamese yes. breed. I, I, yeah, they're yeah, supposedly yeah. the most like dogs. Uh, but yes, <laughs> yeah, they, they, I've heard very good things about them. Uh, but I did have a dog. Did have dogs when I was younger, but today it's just not possible. So, but like I said, I do like animals, and I always take off my hat to people who are able to give them a good home, as Patrick does. Patrick, how many pets do you have at your house? If I might ask. Oh, I have a, you know, have a have a few. Um, so uh, we've we, well, there've been some uh, there's been some attrition sadly over the last few years, uh, oh, but uh, yeah. yeah we've uh, a handful you know literally a handful. Um, so yeah we were uh, it's uh, it, it's 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 enough. <laughs> it's enough. I, I can imagine. Yeah, I can yeah. certainly imagine. Uh, but they have a good home, and obviously I wish you the best of luck in dealing with them. Now there is another article to get to tonight. Uh, this was published in the New York Times. It's titled, GOP Contenders Feed Voter Distrust in Courts, Schools, and Military. This is now getting away from the economy into the realm of politics. Although, uh, I mean, obviously, this this does relate to, to economics. It's just not the most direct of, uh, of, of topics. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it, it's still in the ballpark. Uh, so I will uh, begin to read this article now. 
Uh, Ron DeSantis says the military is more interested in global warming and gender ideology initiatives than in national security. Tim Scott says the Justice Department continues to hunt Republicans. Vivek Ramaswamy has vowed to shut down the deep state, borrowing former President Donald Trump's conspiratorial shorthand for a federal bureaucracy he views as hostile. As Trump escalates his attacks on American institutions, focusing his fire on the Justice Department as he faces new criminal charges, his competitors for the Republican nomination have followed his lead. Several have adopted much of Trump's rhetoric, sowing broad suspicion about the courts, the FBI, the military, and schools as they vie for support in a, in a primary dominated by Trump. They routinely blast these targets in ways that might have been considered extraordinary, not to mention unthinkably bad politics just a few years ago. Yet there is little doubt about the political incentives behind the statements. Polls show that Americans' trust in their institutions has fallen to historic lows, with Republicans exhibiting more doubt across a broad swath of public life. This is something else. Uh, I, I find it interesting that the New York Times is uh, so uh, harshly, uh, even though it's not the most overtly stated of things, there definitely is a tone here of haughtiness and uh, a generally critical uh, perspective of Republicans being distrustful of these key institutions. And uh, you, they've certainly thrown some dings at Donald Trump all the while. But this is an interesting political term because it did used to be that a lot of Republicans as conservatives were generally trusting of various institutions uh, in the country, particularly the military, uh, uh, even the Justice Department. Uh, the Republicans never say liked the, the, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, and probably not even the Department of Education. But uh, when it comes to a lot of things that are now facing heavy scrutiny, from uh, mm -hmm. from a lot of Republican voters, uh, these things uh, several years ago, or maybe even just a few years ago, were not looked upon with such uh, suspicion. Quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, what do you? Uh, also, the court system. Republicans used to be very, very, very supportive of the court system. They used to allow them to have a you know, lock up and throw away the key perspective. Uh, there used to be a borderline uh, spirit of infallibility afforded to judges by a lot of folks on the right, whereas the left was more critical of all this stuff. But now it's topsy-turvy. Uh, Patrick, what do you have to say about this situation? Uh, well, I mean, it's it, there's no question. I mean, it's well-documented. It has been for some time. The, the, the loss of trust and faith in uh, key institutions um, has just you know gone through the, the floor uh, in recent or well, arguably in recent decades depending on which institution we're talking about uh -huh. but in recent years it all seems to have sped up and become more broad-based and there is this interesting um, change uh, it's almost a flip over what's happened I mean it was always the case until comparatively recently that those on the left, um, their default position was that the Department of Justice couldn't be trusted, uh, the police couldn't be trusted, the FBI couldn't be trusted, the Pentagon couldn't be trusted, uh, the defense industry couldn't be trusted um, as, a, as a start. And that um, although they knew that most journalists were on side, um, too many of them liked the idea of being independent-minded and actually following the, sort of the facts. Um, mm -hmm. So they were sort of ambivalent about, about the actual 
journalists, but no ambivalence about those who owned newspapers and TV stations, etc. Those um, those uh, sort of rich tycoony types uh, were clearly doing their best to propagandize on behalf of big business and uh, you know all the other bad actors in in our society, um, as as characterized as defined by the left. Whereas, as you say, most of those institutions were were um, by default supported. Uh, by most on the right. And that has turned around completely, um, really has. So now you have folks on the left def um, defending, not the police, but defending the FBI, the DOJ, uh, defending the Pentagon, defending the defense industry, uh, defending uh, media tycoons, uh, particularly in the, uh, with one or two notable exceptions, particularly in the social media slash tech space. Um, and using them as well, you know, well, you know, they say this. This is what they say, so it must be true. Which, which mm -hmm. these same folks, their their parents and grandparents, uh, you know, would have automatically said the the absolute opposite. Um, mm -hmm. Going to war is now a left wing cause. Um, mm -hmm. Not going to war, not intervening, is now a right wing cause. Right. And mm -hmm. now in America, of course, among Republicans, up to the Second World War not going to war, not intervening was a Republican right-wing cause. Yep. Um, but I'm talking in terms of, you know, the modern politics, modern culture using 1945 as the, uh, the sort of the kickoff of that, you know, it's crudely, crudely chosen, but as a, uh, in terms of the generations, et cetera, and how the political mm -hmm. culture has evolved. It's completely turned around. Uh, the environment obviously remains, the, the remains the same. Um, uh, and it, it's uh, you know, that on the on the left, it was really always. It used to be very very important. You think of the, the kind of alternative education movement, the hippie movement, um, uh, the let's try things differently. What do those um, kind of classical, traditional, old school educators know anyway? In terms of um, not just accepting what. Uh, the school principal said or what the board of education said because either they were in the south they were racists or elsewhere in the country you know they would they were dyed in the war conservatives um they were keeping the wrong keeping people down they were that it was propaganda and all the rest of it and of course you know, they wanted more parental involvement uh, more experimentation and of course now experimentation parental involvement doing things differently reform i mean these are these aren't just wrong ideas, bad ideas. These are racist ideas, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, whereas now Republicans and conservatives uh, want school choice. They want homeschooling. Uh, they want parental rights. They want to be involved in the curricula, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, right? All of these things has really turned around. Um, and I think it's, however, it's, it's misleading um, especially with an election upcoming, to talk about this just in conservative versus liberal terms, as in conservatives used to like these ill institutions, now they don't trust them, uh, it's flipped around. Because what I'm not exclusively talking about, but I think what's most commonly referred to is how the elites on both sides think about these issues. And I would say that on the Republican conservative side, some has changed, but not everything's changed. I mean, it's clearly changed on education, some of those issues, but there's still a deference to the Pentagon, the military industrial complex, um, uh, the police, 
not as I mean, pretty much the DOJ FBI stuff, I think it has, has gone. Um, it's on the Democratic side where the elite, the establishment, your upper <laughs> income people, your professional class people. I told you to be around two. Hopefully only a <laughs> um, they that, that that was the that was the signal. <laughs> Just have to hold our breath and brace ourselves now for uh, how long it lasts. Um, so, the, so the professional class, the elites, the upper income, the highly educated Democrats and lefties, um, they've totally flipped around. What is interesting, I think, is what's happening below that in socioeconomic terms and the political terms. Because what I'm really saying is that middle and upper class folks are the ones who've um, sort of switched places. There hasn't actually been as much switching among working class um, Americans. Um, they still have, even on the left, um, some quite traditional values, even if their policy prescriptions aren't identical and very often quite different, right? Um, and so that is one, that this is how this is, this is all playing out in very interesting ways, right? So this is why you have, why um, Robert Kennedy in challenging Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination is, is getting somewhere. Doesn't mean he's going to get some get a, get far enough to win the Democratic nomination because even if he looked like he might, um, the, the, the Democratic Party establishment would make sure it didn't happen. Almost certainly, mm -hmm. they couldn't allow that to happen. I mean, that would actually yep. be democracy in action, <laughs> and um, that's quite different from democracy in in theory. Uh, uh -huh. So, but the populist left is still anti-war and anti-establishment and anti-experts and doesn't assume just because the FBI or the DOJ or the Pentagon or the FDA or the CDC says it's so, it is so. Just as on the working class right, Americans are not interested in going to some foreign place and getting killed. They're not interested in, you know, in, all, in, um, in politicized prosecutions. And so what is happening is that left and right in the lower socioeconomic groups, demographics, they're now starting to see this for, you know, for what it is, either wasted money, dangerous policy um, maneuvering and politicized science and politicized uh, prosecutions, uh, which is creating sympathy, sympathetic characters out of uh, seemingly previously unsympathetic characters. And it means that there's the potential, there's the potential on some issues and in maybe macro terms for if not an actual coalition, then at least a, um, um, a coalescence of, of mutual interests in, 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 in some ways. Um, just as I would argue that the elites in both parties have more in common, not just demographically, um, and culturally and socially, but more in common in terms of their their attitude in attitudinal ways uh, than they do with their their lessers in their respective parties. Those lessers, those generally lower middle class and working class and heavily disproportionately minority voters um, in the Democratic Party and increasingly in the Republican Party, they also have a lot more in common on issues um, like the economy and trade and immigration and crime and foreign policy and foreign wars. Um, and environmental policy and energy policy and on trusting the experts, particularly the experts in government and on trusting big pharma and trusting the media. Um, so, you know, this is this is why Donald Trump and Bobby Kennedy Jr. 
are they're not singing from the same pages of the hymn book, but they but they have very comparable hymnals that they're referring to, right? Um, they're speaking to different audiences mm -hmm. right now, um, but in truth, they're speaking to different audiences that have a lot more in common in terms of their uh, fundamental notions of what is wrong with the country, which is, which in crude terms, is a belief among left and right working class voters. I would say actually an understanding that it's no longer the case that the country has been temporarily misled, as in you know poorly governed by well-intentioned people who are just turned out to be incompetent or just made the wrong choices, that kind of thing. Um, that there's some businesses um, are, are led by people who don't have um, their, well even their own shareholders' interests in mind, let alone their employees, let alone the, the you know, consumers in general. That journalists are well-meaning. Um, some of them get it, most of them get it right, some of them get it wrong, all these sorts of things. No, um, there's a growing understanding that the system, that systemically there's a problem in America, right? This is something that Donald Trump tapped into, that Bernie Sanders tapped into. It's something arguably going back, you look at Jesse Jackson and others, um, much further back to sort of populists of the left wow. and right. Um, and so you, ha you have a situation now uh, where... It is it has reached such a critical mass, at least among working class voters, that we're at a, we're, we're at arguably a tipping point um, where there's enough electoral juice there that even on the Democratic side, things are going to be interesting, right? I mean, even if Robert Kennedy doesn't do any better than he is now, which is in the you know by most by increasingly by estimations, our most recent estimation, well into the twenties um, against an incumbent president overseeing a glorious economic renaissance, uh, according to the White House press releases anyway, if within that party, which tunes out the, 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 what passes the anti-Biden media, which seemingly um, takes in, um, absorbs and, um, and, and parrots itself in its own social circles and professional circles, um, the talking points of MSNBC and the DNC and all of that, um, and yet still within that, there is one in four voters who think their, incum their incumbent president should be replaced by someone who's never held public office, who the media says is crazy and a crank and, and completely unsuitable and is a Putin uh, puppet and all the rest of it. Um, that shows you just how much appetite there is even on the liberal left and among registered Democrats. Uh, for something different and a recognition that there's something wrong, something quite seriously wrong. So you can imagine what's going on on the right that never had it, was never invested, no, not ever invested in the Biden administration and the Democrats, but actually had a, had a in some cases a longstanding, but in many cases a quite recent but quite intense antipathy um, to, the, to Biden himself and to the Biden administration. Um, so this is powerful stuff. And so married with, potentially married with, the, these economic issues and these, these crime, the crime issue and the immigration issue, it's, it's there for Bobby Kennedy to put his own spin on his own non-conservative, non-Republican spin on what Biden is doing wrong. Um, and he's, you know, and it, to the extent that he's been able to do that so far he's, and the media has allowed him, has given him oxygen to do that. Um, he's doing that very effectively. Um, but it also shows you how much, um, running room there is for the Republicans and for conservatives and for the likes of Trump 
um, to to really take their respective campaigns, um, you know, to a very different place than their opponents thought they had a chance to, and in most cases still don't think they have a chance to. But even that probably further than they thought they had a chance to in 2024. But you know, we, we shall see. Indeed, it will be interesting, uh, put mildly. I believe, uh, Patrick, as unfortunately we do begin to wind things down here, you mentioned that uh, Trump is becoming or has become a sympathetic figure largely due to how he's treated by his political opponents. Uh, at least I believe, at least that's what I recall you saying. Uh, do you think that his opponents at any time perhaps stopped to reflect on this and, you know, they obviously hate him, but do you, from what you can tell, observing the political process, you think there's ever been uh, a point where at least a good number of them said, well, you know, uh, this strategy really isn't the best if we're endearing people to this guy who we despise. Maybe we should do something else. Because it seems interesting to me that uh, the Democrats uh, and uh, some uh, Republicans who despise him, they keep uh, up a very hardline approach with regard to him. And, it, and the end result is him being more competitive against Biden than he was during the last election cycle. Uh, the short answer is no. I mean, the more qualified um, answer is precise answer is um, it, there's a couple of responses. I mean, in the past, you'd have on both sides, but in this case, talking about Democrats, you'd have very senior, savvy, experienced people with a lot of real world campaign and life experience who would have either anticipated that this political prosecution, persecution wouldn't work, or would recognize by now that coincidentally, every time there's a new indictment, Trump gets more popular, not less, right? Um, and they would advise some change of tack, perhaps even a change of course. They don't exist anymore, at least not in positions of influence uh, and power in, in democratic circles, clearly. Or at least if they do, they're not listened to. Um, so you're dealing with folks, there's two things, I think, those who are not counseling a change, uh, a course correction. Um, one is they're just not that good at what they do, right? They're just not that competent. And this is, you know, a problem endemic across our expert class, professional class, whether it's in the private or the public sector. And there's increasingly little diff difference between them in terms of education and, and um, you know, where they live and, and uh, who they marry and what jobs they, you know, what jobs they do and come back and forth from. Um, between the public and private sectors, what schools they go to, etc., uh, and who they encounter in their daily lives, or more to the point, who they do not encounter in their daily lives. So we're talking about folks who live in such a bubble, right, that they just they just um, don't get it, and they just uh, assume that because they have always known he was corrupt and a criminal, um, that everyone else eventually will get it too. They just got to keep spending enough of your of your money on it. They just have to do enough of this for long enough. And eventually, surely, you know, sanity will prevail. And then there's also the large group that that recognizes that however glorious this economic renaissance and cultural and social renaissance and scientific renaissance and environmental renaissance has been in these these last two and a half um, sort of, dare I say it, miraculous years under uh, Joe Biden's um, dedicated um, hands-on leadership. Uh, despite that, the great unwashed don't yet get it, right? And they may not get it because, well, they're the great unwashed, which means they are kind of dumb. 
And so there's only so much these elitists can do to persuade them. So what they have to do is they have to hit them over the head. And the way to hit them over the head is to, uh, is to ideally put um, the great Satan, Donald Trump, in prison. But if not in prison, then damage him sufficiently. Because surely even the great unwashed aren't going to vote for someone who's a convicted felon, right? I mean, God's sakes, what is this? I mean, this is, this, I mean, this is America, right? Um, well, last time we checked. Uh, I think it's with a K now, though, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's my dyslexia kicking in. But the, uh, so, so there's that. So that's, that's got to work. Right. I mean, it has to work. So, you have, you know, so you have people who don't know what they're doing and people who recognize it's the it's the only thing they have. But they remain optimistic. In fact, I think it's optimism. I think it's confidence, arrogance that it will work because, it you know, it, it, it must work. And of course, it's not just among Democrats on the Republican side. I mean, why are so many Republicans seeking the nomination that clearly from the day one, um, day minus one, most Republican primary voters thought Donald Trump had already earned and he was owed, yeah. right? Correct. Why are they doing it? They're doing it because, not because they think they can beat Donald Trump. None of them truly believed, ever believed they could beat him without indictments and prosecutions and prison time. They all thought that, with one exception, I would say Vivek Ramaswamy would be the one exception. But all the others believed, were told, convinced themselves that they just had to do well enough to be second or third or just close enough, be ahead of the, the other, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the other dwarfs in this, in this race. So that when Snow White fell from grace, well, you know, the, the tallest dwarf, uh, whoever he or she may be, would just, you know, walk in. Not because they had beaten Trump, because they didn't need it. This, of course, was central to DeSantis's strategy, right? He wouldn't have been in the race. He only got in the race, with a, well, a bunch of overlapping interwoven reasons. But, you know, in a political, in an electoral sense, he didn't get in the race to beat Trump. He got in the race because he'd been convinced that Trump wouldn't be in the race when uh -huh. it came to voting, right? So he and others are falling flat because they don't have a they're not espousing a message that's appealing to Trump's voters. They need to be campaigning as Vivek is, as with Trump's message, but without Trump. So if you don't like Trump, you like his message, you go that way. They're not doing that. They're, they're in different ways, criticizing Trump. Is part of, oh, I'd have done this differently. I'd, I'd be a different kind of Republican. I'm a different kind of conservative. All the time, just holding on for when Trump is gone. But the problem is that if Trump doesn't go or if that his voters don't care whether he goes or not, they still want Trump or a Trump uh, type candidate, then you have you have nowhere to go. Um, so, you know, incompetence, poor strategic nous, uh, poor tactical nous. Um, some you might even say, you know, political cowardice. It's not exclusively a Democratic thing in 2023, 24. It's all over the place. Right. You can see it everywhere. Um, and so you're going to see, I think, increasingly, you're going to see Trump's support um, possibly go up, but certainly solidify on the Republican side. You're going to say Kennedy continue to give Biden a really good run for his money. Um, I say we'll see in our polling whether what, it, what his potential ceiling may be. Uh, my gut feeling is that his ceiling is, is a little higher than most people um, would assume. And then you're also something which is starting to get a little bit of attention, but I think not enough. You, 
you're going to have a little bit of an opportunity here for independent and third-party candidates to, to make some noise, whether they get votes or not, who knows? I mean, Cornell West is already um, in the race, getting a little attention. Um, and someone like that, whose appeal is going to be, um, I neither want to... Uh, and either want to upset either Bernie fans or Cornell West fans by saying it's sort of a little Bernie Sanders-esque, but he's going to appeal to some of that same slice of the Democratic electorate on the left, um, arguably popular side of things. Um, you may see one or two more. We'll see whether Manchin, um, Joe Manchin gets in the race. I mean, you know, inclined to think he won't. Something will be worked out to his satisfaction. But, you know, he's, he, he's hinting and threatening enough to, to make it look like he's thinking about it. We'll have to see. what and that obviously will be very bad news for Biden. I mean, most of these candidates are bad news for Biden, but there could be somebody, someone on the right. It could be someone credible, well-financed, um, and the sort of center-right who might make a difference. But of course, it's not as simple. In any of these cases, it's not as simple as are they, are they de facto Democrats or Republicans, liberals or conservatives? It's about, I think today, it's more about do they have an establishment appeal on the left or a populist appeal on the left, establishment appeal on the right, populist appeal on the right. And if if it's on the populist side of things, you know, it could, in terms of the general election, um, muddy things up a bit, potentially dilute a bit of support on, on one side or the other. And of course, independent third party candidates, not only they tend to have ideological niches uh, that they attempt to fulfill and satisfy, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But they can skew in all kinds of demographic ways and all kinds of in, in regional ways. And with an electoral college and with so many swing states um, being recently so close and almost certainly close, you know, only legal votes are counted, um, so project them as being fairly close and competitive again in 2024, a third party candidate here, there or wherever um, you know, could tip the balance. So keep that in mind. But if there are successful third, a successful third party candidate or candidates, it's going to reflect what it usually reflects, which is a widespread dissatisfaction. You know, we had Ross Perot because there was such dissatisfaction, not just with the incumbent Republican administration, but with the Democratic alternative, right? Um, and, you know, this is the way, this is, this is the nature of the beast. Um, so, you know, we will see lots to play for, but all of the, from, a, from an analyst pundit point of view, all of the interesting stuff is actually a reflection of things not going well uh, and this whole churn that's happening. And we'll see how much churn is permitted, how much churn is allowed, and what, in which direction, um, if there is sufficient momentum, the, the momentum receives an ox oxygen in various ways, in which direction that takes the country. Because the it's I mean we, we can see it I'm sure others do too in their polling we can see it in our numbers have done for some time I mean there's a real angst out there there's frustration there's angst there's I think there's actually sadness in many cases and there's a tremendous sense of insecurity and it's it's not just it's principally economic security but it's also personal insecurity because of the crime issue and there's also a sense of insecurity about what is going to happen? You know, I mean, obviously, a large number of people serve in the military, active military and reservists. And are they going to find themselves in Europe at some point? Um, are they going to find themselves, um, you know, in the South Pacific? Oh, sorry, say in the um, in Southeast Asia at some point. Uh, you know, folks are insecure and they have different ideas about who's to blame and what the how they what the solutions would be. But when there is so much angst and there is so much insecurity. 
it's going to find an outlet somehow, even in this very managed democracy that America um, is uh, thriving in these days. It's you know it's going to find an outlet, um, and hopefully it's you know it, it, it's it's a it's a peaceful and legal one. Uh, but if it doesn't get that outlet, it'll find others. I'd say the least. And uh, before we go, I mean, just has to be brought up. DeSantis is not just doing badly against Trump. He's basically uh, floundering in a way that is profoundly uh, embarrassing and uh, detrimental to his post-2024 political prospects. Do you have any take on why Ron has done so badly this time around? Not just once again in the sense of you know performing poorly against Trump, which anyone could see was going to happen, but uh, he certainly has taken a hit to his popularity over this, over how he's run his campaign. And that goes beyond, you know, just having uh, a bid that was designed to wait out Trump's uh, status as a free man. Well, I mean, it's, it goes back to the fundamentals of the campaign in that um, I think that if you spoke to uh, Republican or conservative minded people, voting people um, who were talking about sort of ordinary ordinary voters, not people with a, a dog in the fight in a, in a financial sense or anything like professional sense, um, who were very keen on DeSantis in 2022 and early into 2023. And they they tended to fall into the category of, we think Trump was a good president. We wish he'd been reelected. Um, it didn't work out whether fairly or unfairly, but he's kind of tainted goods. Um, DeSantis is a successful governor. Uh, younger, fresher face, doesn't turn people off. He'll run, you know, on on Trump's platform. All we need is Trump with Trump's platform without Trump, right? You hear that? You still hear it. You heard it even more last year. Um, and we're just, you know, Biden's the disaster. Uh, there's going to be nothing to turn off. Republicans who've voted for Biden will come back. Independents and suburbanites will come back, and um, it's going to be great. Uh, no one, you know, no one can call our candidate a racist or a criminal or corrupt or a Putin puppet or any of that stuff. That assumed that Trump, the Santos, assumed a couple of things. It assumed that the Santos was a good campaigner, for one, retail or otherwise. Um, and as you know, Joseph, better than most, um, that's never really been the case. Uh-huh. He's been a successful campaigner, mostly, particularly obviously at the gubernatorial level, but he's never been himself a great campaigner. It's very Hillary Clinton-like, right? You've got this attractive resume. You've got a certain amount of electoral success. But the person actually isn't a very good campaigner. They're not nec- they're not, aren't actually a great candidate. Doesn't mean they can't win. They've obviously won some in the past. Doesn't mean they couldn't win. But it means that if they're tested and they're up, that it's a real challenge they're likely to fall short, as Hillary Clinton did, and as we're seeing with, the, with DeSantis, right? DeSantis, for whatever reason, whether it's his own decision-making, his wife's collectively, they very early, I mean, pre-campaign, clearly came under the influence, might have been entirely political, might have been cultural, might have been financial, some combination of, the, of all of these things, that convinced them that the the number one that Trump was going to be indicted at least once and it would destroy him. So therefore, there was a path that was 
didn't make any sense at the time, it's made less, less sense ever since. But that that campaign didn't need to be, while Donald Trump was in the race, you needed to be anti-Trump, right? Instead of instead of the, the human face of Donald Trump, the uh, kind of gentler face of Donald Trump, but his platform. See, you had to know that the cats would not leave this platform entirely for the dogs. I mean, cats are just not going to do that. Um, so round three has kicked off. My money is on the felines all day, every day, twice on Sundays. Um, they just they just have a killer instinct that the uh, the, the Shih Tzus lack. Um, but, you know, converse, a, a, a podcast for another day, um, uh, Joseph. So It'd be a fascinating one. Please continue, though. But back to the less interesting issue of uh, DeSantis' campaign, um, that as long as Trump was in the race, you had to run as, as anti-Trump, right? You take every opportunity not to support him on things that all Republican voters agree with Trump on or sympathetic to Trump on, such as the prosecution. Um, you, you, where you take a position that reflects the Trump voter, like um, being a little cynical or a little uh, cautious on, on Ukraine, as soon as you get any pushback from the mainstream media or establishment Republicans, you back off completely, right? All these mm -hmm. sorts of things. And elsewhere, you just, you know, you focus on the issues that are more important to um, upper mar up market Republicans and conservatives, like the woke issues. Not that they're not important, but in terms of what people are going to vote on, more important to them, those aren't the most important issues to your working class voters who are going to determine um, not just the outcome of the Republican primary, but they're going to determine the outcome of the general election, I would argue. Um, so you you know you run on the you run on the wrong issues, um, and you just you and you don't learn from your mistakes, right? Every, you just and so you and your campaign is run by you're surrounded by you're advised by people who are not who are not um, experts in what is driving the Republican Party. In fact, they don't even seem to appreciate the Republican Party is not their Republican Party anymore. You can say it's a terrible thing, but it's Donald Trump's party. That is, it's his voters' party. You know, the issues that are important and the positions on those issues have evolved. It, just as the Democrats are not recognizable, they're unrecognizable from previous elections, decades, certainly, personalities, the Republicans, it's the same. It is now a grassroots, populist, working class party. That's just a fact. You don't have to like it, but it's a fact. So if you're going to win that primary, you've got to know what those issues are. You've got to be on the attractive, appealing side of it, right? You can't be a reaction against it, right? So the DeSantis has campaigned in policy terms and in terms of optics and in terms of vibe and feel as if this is um, 2012, 2008, 2000, 1992, right? Um, even then, there were clear signs that something was changing on the Republican side of things, which finally the came Buchanan to candidacy in 19, as early as 1992. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so they just, you know, it just made every possible mistake. Even if you assume nothing but the best of intentions and all the rest of it, just every possible mistake. Uh, and and so now they're in a, of course it's spent their money poorly, right? Because they were spending it in the wrong places, in the wrong ways, on the wrong messages. Um, so now they're in a situation where the donors are fleeing because they what what what's very hard for any candidate to understand, particularly one you know who's a, a successful governor and sees himself as the next president, and more importantly, his wife sees herself as the next first lady, is that it's hard to believe that you're wrong, right? You're wrong about your appeal. 
um, that all this and that these people have been advising you and flooding you with money. They're not actually in love with you. The, you, you, you're a very pleasant, convenient, least tolerable sort of series of one night stands that get you and them to a place you weren't before. Uh-huh. But they don't want to. They don't want to marry you, right? Mm-hmm. Therefore, first sign of trouble, they're gone, right? Yeah. They're pulling their money. They're looking for someone else. Some are going back to Trump. All of that, right? And so they now that everything they've done, every retooling has failed. It's not just that Trump has kept going up, but DeSantis, the more he does to fix the problem, the more, the lower he gets. That's why in some polls, we'll see where we are in our next Express poll, but in some polls, Vivek is now second, right? DeSantis is third. He might yeah. even, he stays in this thing. He might not even come second, uh, right? Um, yeah. You know, so they now have less money. They got less people. Every, every it's just, you know, it just smells bad. It's just clearly dead candidate walking, which means that if that's how we got here, what are his prospects? Well, his prospects are disastrous because, I mean, Trump's not going to be prosecuted out of this race. But let's say, heaven forbid, that, you know, he just, you know, he was incapacitated physically and, and he just had to leave the race. Well, DeSantis is no longer the heir apparent, right? I mean, it quite likely, I mean, almost certainly he wouldn't be the candidate without yeah. Trump. So, I mean, this is how bad it is, which means that if he's not contractually obligated to continue this race to the bitter end, and I don't, I don't know whether he is or isn't, I suspect that he that he may be, then the only thing that makes any sense, and if he had people advising him who were as much concerned about his political future as their next check, they would tell him, you have to leave now, leave gracefully, leave with, leave with your head held high, leave with a certain amount of honor, leave with class, endorse Trump, and you still possibly have a future, right? Somewhere in the Republican Party, somewhere in American politics at a state or, or a national level. Um, but I don't think he's being told that. And I'm not sure that, like many candidates in this type of a horrible situation, I'm not sure that he and his wife are able, will be able to process that and come to the, you know, actually execute the logical uh, conclusion and dis- come to the logical conclusion and execute the obvious decision making that follows along with that. It's interesting when it comes to Ron because you really can't discuss him without discussing Casey and the immense impact she has upon his decision making down to the most minute level. Uh, I think his candidacy is a cautionary tale in a great many contexts, but perhaps the greatest context is not to have a campaign where your romantic partner uh, leads the way and where apparently you run in order to suit the uh, desires of your partner. Uh, One would think that this is something elementary when it comes to uh, potentially, let alone actually running for office, but uh, it would seem that DeSantis did not get the memo. Uh, Any take on this bizarre, really sad aspect of Ron 2024, Patrick? Any successful campaign at any level if, if it's a married, if, if the candidate's married, it requires his or her spouse to buy into it big time. Mm-hmm. And um, you hope that in various ways they can be either publicly or privately helpful to you. Um, it can just be emotional support. It can be beyond that. Uh, but yeah, you, you, you can get a, a situation can develop, which no one wants, where it becomes apparent that once 
one spouse wants it more than the other. It's, it's awkward if the one who wants it more is the candidate, but it's sort of expected, uh-huh. you're right? And voters can kind of process that because in their own lives, you know, they've gone for a job or wanted a job or wanted to move or buy a house, sell a house, mm-hmm. and the others, their, their spouse hasn't been as keen and they understand that's just the way life is. Sometimes you compromise, sometimes you don't. Regrets, good decisions, etc. But when the non-candidate spouse clearly wants it more, or at least has more fire in the belly for it than the candidate, the formal candidate, that's kind of awkward, isn't it? Um, And it's not a question, I think, of people criticizing either of them or they they shouldn't criticize them. I mean, it's their decisions, it's their lives. You know, good luck to them. It's just that it it just creates an optic and an energy and a sense that this guy, this is the case of this guy, DeSantis, that maybe he isn't as presidential, potentially presidential as we had hoped, right? Mm-hmm. Or is that his expensive campaign advertising campaign, uh, expensive campaign advertising uh, project suggested, right? And it's just, it's just, it's just not the look you want in that context, right? It, you know, it doesn't make him a bad guy. It doesn't make her. Uh, you know, a bad lady or a, a bad wife, but it's not. It's you no, know, it's it's not the um, the look you want, and it, it's fundamentally, as it turns out, it's probably not the advice he needed. Uh, to say the least, uh, it, it's really uh, something else, something very unfortunate. But Ron uh, and Casey uh, are certainly damaging Ron's uh, political prospects going forward. And it, it's sad to see because it's needless. But then again, his campaign against Trump was needless. So it, it's one uh, misadventure following the next. And needless to say, when it comes to a misadventure, it's always uh, avoidable, whatever pain results from it. So it's, it, yeah, it's, it's just sad to see the waste, uh, the squandering of talent and potential uh, that comes with this situation. Uh, I, I Before I get to the uh, final question, Actually, went a bit over time, but uh, something did come up given what we were uh, discussing, the Republican uh, so-called elite or leadership's uh, divergence, put kindly, from the base. Uh, Aza Hutchinson, uh, who is, uh, some might not realize, but he is running for president. He's a hardcore anti-Trump Republican. He was on, of all platforms, MSNBC the other day. And uh, he was complaining that he needs small dollar donors. Mm. Uh, And he was aggravated uh, that he had to attend Iowa's state fair. He said, quote, I got, he said, quote, I've got to spend all of my time at the Iowa State Fair trying to get on the debate stage with $1 contributions. And then it goes on a bit and it resumes, not good for our democratic process. And this quote from him goes to show, I think, the tone depthness, uh, the willful blindness of so-called, not just Republican leaders, but so-called leaders, period, in American politics. Um, they talk about democracy, they say democracy is the best thing since sliced bread, so on and so forth. But then when it comes to actually having to get in the nitty gritty of the democratic process, oh, yeah. they dislike it. And they say that them oh, being held, having their feet held to the fire, in a manner of speaking, it's not good for oh. democracy. So this thing from no, no, God, it's uh... Yeah, it, 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 it's so illustrative of the problem, the bipartisan oh. problem in America today. 
I couldn't agree more, Joseph. It was just absolutely exhibit A for the cultural and social snobbery that, that's uh, so uh, pervasive amongst both establishment Republicans and Democrats, right? Um, I mean, it's just naked. Um, and of course, you know, he's wrong on two levels. He's wrong to be so disparaging and so snobbish in a cultural and social sense um, to the folks who, you know, pay the taxes and do most of the heavy lifting economically um, and politically in terms of, I'm sure he's had the odd campaign volunteer, although not too many right now, but in the past, uh, you know, who's uh, been a dollar donor, not um, a million dollar donor. But I mean, these guys, they want, they want to make a few phone calls. They want to have a dinner party. They want to have a function at some rich person's house and collect a, a small number of very large checks and away they go. Um, right. Because that way they don't have to get outside their comfort zone, outside their bubble. And of course, it's such a mistake on two levels. It's a mistake in the sense that their experiences on a day to day basis mean that they have almost no contact, if any at all, with ordinary people. So they don't they're not uh, familiar with the day to day struggles, if they ever were, um, of such people. And the not just about being familiar with their struggles, but familiar with what's important to them in their daily lives and how that potentially impacts and does impact their voting decisions, right? So there's all of that that they miss. And this is where Trump is genius, you know, in terms of his ability to just, to, like Clinton was, Clinton and Trump, to demonstrate visually that they are interested in your life, whether it's listening to you, whether it's, you know, going and, eating the fast food that you eat and all this kind of thing, but just mixing it up with regular folk. But um, this, but it, it's, 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 a, it's a way of gathering intel, but it's also a way of showing that you, you know, to use George Bush Sr.'s famous phrase, you know, message I care. You can say it, but you can also act it, and act it is about a thousand times more effective. Asa Hutchinson is saying, I don't care, <laughs> and I shouldn't have to care, right? He's just saying the quiet part out loud. But the other thing they miss is how, and most of the media miss this, is how important those small dollar donations are. I say that for, for two reasons. The first one is, is the obvious. Well, it's money, right? So um, Trump does incredibly well, 2016, 2020, 2024, with small dollar donations. Who's the other candidate in recent times who's done really well on the same front? Obama, right? Mm -hmm. This is one of the things, especially in 2008. And this is really important in terms of projecting who's going to win or who may win. Hillary was all big donations. Obama was small. Guess who won that? Trump was small. Hillary was yeah. big. Trump won that. Look at 2020, same dynamic. Some of us would argue if only legal votes were counted, Trump won that one too. Even if, as in the case of Obama against Clinton or Trump against Clinton, Trump against Biden, they're massively out, out uh, fundraising spent. Right. But what those small dollar donations tell you, what you need to know more than the volume, more money is good if you spend it well. And you need a certain amount to be able to compete in terms of communications and logistics, and all that. But what the small dollar donations tell you is numerically how many people are invested in your campaign, how many people are attracted to your campaign, how many people are enthusiastic about your campaign. Right. Because, Absolutely. well, I used to say this with certitude. I don't say it so much now, but in theory, in American politics, everyone only, everyone only has one vote. I mean, 
can't say that quite as definitively as I could a few years ago, but let's say it's still the, that way or it will be that way in 24. Everyone just has one vote. So if I give you a billion dollars and the guy next to me gives you $10, we both only have one vote. What you do with that money may or may not help you, but you didn't get more votes out of me because I gave you more money, right? Um, and in fact, the person who gives you a hundred bucks, which is literally all they can afford, it's a greater investment and commitment on their part than the person who writes you a hundred thousand dollar check for whom they could write that check every day of the week. Right. Um, so that's why if you look at, I mean, there are dozens of really helpful, um, you know, predictive, um, variables in terms of how elections are going to pan out, but amongst um, the dozen or so that are the most reliable, the candidate that has the, that who has the most numerically, the greatest number of small dollar donations is the candidate that nearly always wins, whether it's a primary or especially in the general election. Um, so it's really good news for Bobby Kennedy Jr. It's really good news for Donald Trump. And so Asa Hutchinson, that mentality, it's a lot of it's about they don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to mingle with those people who go to McDonald's and shop at Walmart and listen to country music and own guns and, you know, whatever else, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, fight the wars and do the dying and all that kind of thing. Um, we don't want to mingle with those for obvious reasons. I mean, how much disinfectant in the world is there? But um, <laughs> but what they but they also miss is that it's a sign, not just a sign. It's a demonstration of your support. So if Asa Hutchinson made more effort and did it convincingly, actually appeared to enjoy it, or at least recognize it's necessary, he would learn more, but he'd also garner more support because it would take him more time to earn that money, but he would actually be earning it. And he would be, there'd be something of a sort of um, a quid pro quo in, in the best sense between him and those small dollar do donors. But I mean, it's just, I mean, why is he at 0% in the polls? Because he doesn't get it. In, you know, in all senses, right? He thinks it's 2000. Um, he thinks it's about doing well with rich people and people in big business and Wall Street, et cetera, et cetera. And he's not alone in that. Very interesting how the times have changed. And obviously the internet has uh, yeah. broadly altered the nature of fundraising and it's made it yeah. more, shall we say, democratized. And uh, the ramifications of that are what they are and some people like Aza and he's in considerable companies you were mentioning have yet to catch up with uh yeah. the present who knows how they would handle the future now patrick last thing tonight uh before we unfortunately depart where do you see the economy going uh over the uh, say uh, until the beginning of 2024 it's hard to look much beyond that but uh, do you see things continuing to worsen do you see them maybe getting a bit better in some ways where do you see I think the economy heading? I think the next six months is going to continue to worsen. Um, I would be surprised, but not shocked, if it was dramatic. If it worsened dramatically, I think it was, the really bad news is going to come in 2024. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not in a position to say whether it's going to be the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter. I suspect it's probably going to be probably the worst of its second, third quarter, which is fantastic mm -hmm. electoral news for the Republicans and conservatives, but. Um, you know, all to be determined. Um, I think it's going to be more of this drip, drip effect of bad news, bad times. Um, and, and people, you know, I think it's going to be a, you know, a, a dismal Christmas for many people. Um, you know, it's just not, it's just, there's just no sunshine on the horizon. 
uh, and um, it it probably will be what's going to be highly influential in terms of the outcome of these elections. It should be, uh, and it, it may be you know absolutely decisive. But it's, yeah, there, there's I don't think there's any reason. I mean, you look, you see, you say, well, America's badly run economic in economic terms, but you know we're going to be helped, buffeted in the be- in a positive sense uh, by else elsewhere. Well, you know. The EU is doing terribly. EU is in recession. China is doing terribly. They haven't had the bounce back that they thought and our Western experts thought they would have. Canadians are doing terribly. Australia is doing terribly. Um, I mean, there are these small, insignificant countries um, that uh, we've never uh, had any time for that we've ensured uh, wouldn't do well in the in the contemporary period, you know, like Russia. Um, but um, aside from them, a uh, few like that, a uh, few tax havens around the world, um, there's there's no one who's going to help us, right? Um, I mean, even China's not going to likely be able to bail us out in a, in a um, in any kind of um, economic sense. I mean, both imports and exports are way down between America and, and China. Um, whether you think big picture, long term, that's a good or a bad thing. Um, in the short term, it just it, what it is. It's 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 emblematic of the fact that both economies are um, are, are doing poorly. Um, so there's just where you know if it's not it's not going to come internally, um, you know not before we bottom out uh, because we just don't have the people um, running economic policy. Who, you know they're the ones who got us in this mess. They're certainly not going to dig us out of it, uh, and it's not going to be forced upon us. Good times aren't going to be forced upon us. Um, by the Chinese demanding our exports or the EU demanding our exports, anything like that. Uh, so, and we're going to continue to apparently continue to spend, throw good money after bad when it comes to Ukraine. It's hard to see us getting our fiscal house in order. Interest rates, are, the worst may be over, but interest rates are likely to still go up uh, for a while, certainly through the rest of this year. I just, I just, you know, I just don't see, there's no regulatory relief coming, quite the opposite. The energy sector is not going to do it. I mean, that's that's a situation that's being made worse. It's just hard to see in the short term um, where the relief comes from. Indeed, uh, a very grim note to end on, but I'm sure there will be several uh, similarly grim, if not more grim notes during our future conversations. Uh, I'm looking forward to them, but I must say this conversation was excellent as always. Really no surprise, but it's just worth bringing up all the same. Patrick, are any of your animals in the room? If they would like to make an appearance before you go, that'd be um, great. I think they've now, they... they've now scattered. Uh, but I do, I'm reminded, I remind your, um, your, your more mature um, audience members, the line from the end of the, uh, the first iconic Ghostbusters movie, I think when Bill Murray refers to basically the ap- apocalyptic nature of what may happen next. <laughs> and one of the things he mentions is cats and dogs living together. Uh, and uh, for those of us who are living that apocalyptic Ghostbusters, Bill Murray nightmare um, delight, then um, I say that I hope that, thank you for your kind words about the conversation, uh, Joseph, which I've enjoyed immensely. I hope your audience members have found it interesting too, um, even perhaps enlightening at moments, at least enlightening about the the politics of uh, cats and dog, canines and felines, and uh, we'll have to stop polling them, although I have a pretty good idea um, how they respectively divide on these issues. But hopefully it's all proven um, a little entertaining. 
It was I, I enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, it added a few uh, humorous moments to a rather serious conversation. Indeed. And humor is always uh, necessary. Uh, but uh, anyway, Patrick, obviously looking forward to the next conversation. As we mentioned, this was a great one. I hope everyone who tuned in enjoyed the chat as much as Patrick and I did. To all of you, I stay 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 safe, be well, uh, cheers, and please tune in for the next show. Have a good one. Thank <music> you.